This is Ed Mazur, chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Our program today was a very energetic conversation on the state we're in, 2019, a conversation on the state of public education in Illinois. The program was moderated by Robin Steens, who serves as the president of Advance Illinois, a bipartisan nonprofit educational policy and advocacy organization working to ensure that every child in Illinois has access to quality schools and is a leader in the effort to create a more equitable school funding formula. Her panelists included Jesse Ruiz, the Deputy Governor for Education in the state of Illinois that oversees the state's education system from early childhood through higher education. He also serves on the Illinois Student Assistance Commission and the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Mr. Ruiz was joined by Miguel de Valle. Miguel de Valle is the president of the Chicago Board of Education. He began that job in June of 2019. He's a retired elected official who has served on many committees, boards, and commissions. In fact, in 1986, he was the first Latino senator in the Illinois General Assembly, where he served for 20 years. The third panelist was Representative Will Davis, a member of the Illinois legislature for close to 20 years. He represents the south suburbs, Blue Island, Dixmoor, Dalton, East Hazelcrest, Flossmoor, Harvey, and much, much more. The state of, we're in, conversations on the state of public education. They just issued a report that is available to all of our listeners at advanceillinois.org. Go to their website and you find this most informative report. The report examines current performance in the state of Illinois, past performances. It looks at the other 50 states and where Illinois is. The report focuses in on equity gaps by race, ethnic origin, and income status. There's even a regional analysis with district-level data. The conversation concluded by saying that overall educational levels since 2000 in the state of Illinois have gone up whether you're white, black, or Latinx. But still, there are gaps and much hard work lay ahead. As Robinstein said in conclusion, all children can learn, regardless of culture, economic background, areas of residence. We just must continue to see that we continue on the road upward and not be diverted. I am delighted to be here. It's become something of a tradition. This is the fifth time that we've released the state we're in, um, about the state of public education in Illinois, and everyone has been here at City Club. And I know that's because they, they, like we, have an abiding belief that you want to make informed decisions, that how do you get people thinking about and focusing on facts, and um, have taken a very different approach. You've got Mark Twain on the one hand to, what does he say, what is it, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And uh, my father, who used to say, be very careful that you don't use facts the way a drunk uses a lamppost for support, not illumination. So we are here very much in the spirit of of the opposite of those things and of really trying to make sure, um, as you will see from the report, we've made some gains. There's some things to feel good about in the state of public education, but we've got a lot of work to do, and we can't do it nearly as effectively if we don't pay attention to what the information is telling us. So we started doing this about 11 years ago because there wasn't a place where all that information came together to live, um, and we thought it was important that we have it and we have these conversations. But these kinds of reports don't happen by accident, so I want to thank, I want to start by um, thanking a few folks. In addition to the City Club for having us, I really want to thank the Advanced Illinois board members who have been passionate about this as well from the very get-go. We have a number of them here. They want to raise their hands or smiles. We've got Lou Collins, Judy Irwin, Juan Salgado, Sarah Stalinga, John Edwardson, and Sylvia Puente. They're a smart and brainy group. We're a nonprofit bipartisan group. I hope you get the sense that we cover the, the waterfront with those board members and beyond. Um, I am going to have a chance to thank our panelists shortly, so you can keep eating. I'll get to you. Um, and then I also want to thank, we can't get this done if the team doesn't put in a huge amount of effort. So I just really want to give a shout out to the Advance Illinois team, um, Helen Zhang, um, Ann Whalen, Roderick Hawkins, Janine Minor, Melissa Figuero, and a particular shout out to Jessica Ramos, Jill Gottfried Sahoni, and a particular shout out to Jim O'Connor, who captained the effort to bring a lot of data together with a lot of people providing input. Um, I'm going to tell you what's in the report, and then I'm going to thank one last group. But let's start. What are we going to talk about here? 
So the report, what the report goes over in the is about 55 to 80 metrics. It's varied over time. I think we're getting closer to 80 now that we look at those. And we look at metrics that when we pull together an advisory council, which we do every time we release this report, what do brainy people in early childhood, K-12, and higher ed think we ought to be paying attention to if we want to understand how well we're doing? What are the indicators that matter most? And then we look at our current performance, past performance, We look to see how we compare to other states in the country and leading states to have a sense of um, what's possible. And then we pay close attention to equity gaps. How are different subgroups performing? And the other thing that we're doing this year that's new, and we've been asked every year to do it, and this year we were able to pull it off, we have a regional analysis. So you have a paper version of that at your table, but we've also got some additional information on a per-district basis on our website, advancedillinois.org, where you can go and see on any of these things that matter, or many of them, not all of them, I'm afraid to say. We're working on it. Um, and we'll keep adding things as we get it done. But if you want to see how your district in particular looks, please go to the website and look that up. Um, so then the last thing that we do, or the next thing that we do, is we pay attention to how are we doing overall um, if we bundled it together. Because 80 is a lot of measures, and we want to make sense of it. And we make sense of it in two ways. One of them is that we show a ladder. How are we doing at every step on that education continuum? And then the other thing we do is that we bundle in three areas. The learning conditions. What are the environment in which our children and our teachers and instructors are working in early childhood, in in K-12, and in higher ed? What are the actual student learning outcomes we're seeing? And what does the equity look like? Are we getting the same results across all groups? Are we doing equally well for all of our students? And any place that we can, in fact, compare ourselves to national averages in other states, that's what we pull together and we look to see globally and collectively how are we doing. So we're going to be sharing that as well. Obviously, it's we want to be number one. I will remember and I will bracket this. We are the fifth largest economy in the country. We ought to be doing very, very well when you consider that. You'll see that in some places we're starting to show some spark, and in some places we got some work to do. But the group that helps us pull all this together is our advisory council, and some of them are in the room with us today. Pranav Kathari, Ushma Shah, Caroline Crozier, Ben Bohr, Nancy Waymack. Will you wave your hands? Thank you very much. It's a really good group. Some of them joined us the other week. Any metrics you have problems with, that's their fault. So maybe you're sorry you raised your hands now. All right, so let's get going. All of this is against the backdrop, first and foremost. The state has an objective. The state's goal, and we adopted this about eight or nine years ago. Miguel de Valle was the chair of the P20 Council at the time, which is a place where people across the education continuum come together and talk about the system as a system, and agreed we ought to be shooting to get 60% of our adult population with a high-quality post-secondary degree by the year 2025. Why? That's why. Employment trends are very clear that increasingly you need some amount of post-secondary in order to get a living wage job. In gray are the places, those are kids with high school, those are jobs that are available to people with high school diplomas or less. There are jobs out there. There probably always will be. But if you look at it, over two-thirds of those jobs now require something above and beyond a high school diploma. And I get asked more and more, and I think folks see that, that there's a lot of concern out there about affordability and about debt, and is it really worth it to go on to post-secondary? But these basic numbers have not changed in 50 or 60 years since we've been paying close attention. That every step along the educational run you go, you are that much more likely to be employed, and your earnings go up. So the logic is very clear. Having that as a goal makes sense. So how are we doing at getting kids there? We pay attention to this ladder, because... What we see is that how well you do at each rung has something to do with how well you're going to do further up that ladder. So how are we doing on our kindergarten readiness? How many kids are reading by grade level at third or fourth grade, computing at grade level in eighth grade such that they're showing they're ready to go on and be successful in high school? How many are completing high school? How many are completing high school with the college and career-ready skills they need to be successful thereafter? How many are going on to post-secondary? Completing post-secondary. And that's what we're going to walk through um, now. So... First and foremost, um, in kindergarten, one of the things I'm delighted to, in the very first time that we did this report, we didn't know. How are our kids doing as they're starting kindergarten? We're a state that prides itself on investing in early childhood. Was it showing up? Were kids coming ready? We didn't know. But we now do. We now have an assessment, the kids' assessment, that is a developmentally appropriate observational tool that helps us understand how kids are in their language acquisition, some of their math and science skills, and as importantly, in their social and emotional development. And the um, 
So it was not available before. I don't know if you can read this here, but it's in your, if you got a, you should have a um, executive summary if you want to be playing along at home. Please have it out in front of you and you can look at this. 26% of our students are demonstrating readiness across those three domains. 26%. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Next, we take pay attention to how kids are doing in fourth grade, third grade reading. We use fourth grade because we've got a nationally normed assessment that we use there. This is a powerhouse indicator. This tells us a lot. Kids who are reading at grade level by third or fourth grade dramatically more likely to go on to be successful in school, to complete high school, and to go on to thrive. This matters a lot. We have shown slow and steady progress. If you go back 10 years, this is just a five-year window. We were at about 31, 32%. We're now at 35%. That's great. It's not great enough. If you look at eighth grade math, we are at 32%. Um, five years ago, we were at 36%. That was actually a blip. If you go back another five years, again, we were at 30 31%. So there's been a little bit of an inching forward, though over 10 years, I don't think anybody thinks we can rest on laurels there. High school graduation rates um, in Illinois have remained largely stable. They have increased. The average, however, we're at 85%. That's good. That's very nationally competitive. I don't think anybody, again, thinks that there's 15% that we want to give up on. But what's good about this is that what this average masks is the fact that we've really closed gaps in graduation rates. So all groups have started to improve those graduation rates, um, which is particularly promising there. The percent of students that are demonstrating college readiness on the SAT or the ACT, we used to be an ACT state, we're now an SAT state, has remained largely steady at 38%. I'm going to pause here. This is slightly statistically, um, you know, messy. Helen, don't, don't, don't raise your hand and, and shout at me. But if you multiply 38%, what's 38% of 85%? Because that's really what we want. We don't want you just to graduate from high school. We want you to graduate with the skills that you need. So 38% of 85, and you end up right around 32%, and I think you're probably starting to sense a pattern here. I will also pause here to say that the state is developing a college and career readiness measure that looks beyond test scores. Um, We no longer do work keys. Work keys was a way of giving us a window into career readiness. So we are working as a state on something that gets beyond test scores to look at whether kids are involved in internships, work experiences, and some of the other softer skills that that we know matter. So stay tuned for that because I think that will round out the story here. The other good news is that more students are enrolling in post-secondary. This is one of the places where we've really seen a push. And it's and, and I'm going to pause here also because this is a place the state has really been focused. It was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, or maybe I should say 15 or 20 years ago, we weren't as focused on making sure that kids have some amount of post-secondary, technical degree, an associate's, or a four-year. We have really made that much more of a front and center push, and we're really starting to see the dividends of that. So more are enrolling. I'm also pleased to tell you that more are completing. Our completion rates are going up. Yay. The bad news is that the gaps are pretty serious there. So we're leaving far too many students behind. And then how are we in the overall number of what percent of our adult population have those post-secondary degrees? We're at 45%. So we've got some, and again, there's been improvement there. But I want to caveat this 45%. A couple things. One, the reason it's higher is because some kids go back and get degrees later. We're also an in-migration state. But I also want to point out that this what this leaves out, because we have not yet got the data to do this cleanly, so those of you who care about data, this is one of the other areas we need to clean up, is technical certificates. That would bump our number up still further. So there is some good news there and there has been some growth there. But let's now dig into each of these and also look at the overall landscape in which this work has been happening. Because you can see the growth, but it's important to understand the backdrop of that. Because we we don't stay in flux. We are a dynamic state. And the truth is that the needs of students who are coming into schools has been changing. That the overall level of poverty in schools is greater than it was. The number of schools that are dealing with higher concentrations of students living in poverty has also gone up. So you've been seeing these gains and these changes against a backdrop of a higher need population. It is also a more diverse population. If you look here, look at how changed the landscape is in terms of who is in our public schools. With the biggest single growing area being our Latinx population, which is really exploded. And again, not just in one or two places, but really it's not just that there are more um, students, but that they are more widespread in more communities. Um, So that's also a part of the backdrop. I also would be remiss, since we pay a lot of attention to, to, to funding as well, 
to see how our spending has held through. It is no secret to anybody over the last 10 years, we've had a few fiscal challenges. How did we hold up under this? The, rea- the early childhood and post-secondary have had the hardest time, though it's a slightly different story. Early childhood, we were 24th in the nation in terms of our per-pupil spending in the birth to five years. We're still the 24th. But we took some hits during that time. We're going to pay some prices for that, I believe, down the line. But the good news is that we are, we are holding steady. That is not the case at higher education, and I'm sure we'll get some questions about this, but if you look, look at that. And if I had this year's data, because it's always a little bit trailing, we couldn't get it for you, um, we would have we rebounded a little bit. But we were 19th in the country 10 years ago, and we are 45th in the nation now. Think about that. And what that does is that creates affordability challenges. If you consider how much a family, particularly a family um, living at or near the poverty line, needs to pay for child care, early childhood services, or at the higher level for college or post-secondary, it can be as much as 50% of their income, which prices that out for an awful lot of families that need it most. Now, as disturbing as that news is, while we have not done as much as I think anybody would wish we had done in the early years and in our post-secondary years, the bright spot here is K-12. K-12 funding has moved in the last 10 years, and really most of that growth, as you can see, was in the last five years, and I think you all know why. We were 45th in the nation. Not only that's the adequacy per pupil number that the state was contributing. We were one of the worst in class, fifth largest economy, remember. We were also one of the least equitable. And we have fixed the formula, and the state has been putting $350 million or thereabouts into the formula each of the last three years. They're on a pace to do that for 10 years. And that has bumped us up in a very short period of time to 24th in the country. That is a huge move in a short period of time. But again, it's 24th. That is nothing to sneeze at. Um, And it has had very profound results for schools, but it's 24th when we are, again, the fifth largest economy. Here tells you some of the impact that that has had, who's benefited from those dollars. It used to be when the formula was put in place, about 170 districts were below 60% funded. They had less than 60 cents on the dollar of what they needed to serve their students. That's thousands and thousands of dollars of pupil less than those districts needed. And we have reduced that number down to 34 in three short years, and that is something to cheer about. But the bad news is half of our districts are still below 70% funded, and an awful lot of those are clustered just above that 60% hurdle. So we still have a lot of work to do here, even as we know we've also got a lot of work to do in early years and in post-secondary years. So what's at stake on that and getting that right? Let's just dig in very quickly before, and then we'll be bringing our panelists up. So early childhood, let's see how we rank compared to other states. We can't compare ourselves on outcomes and equity because while we do have our kindergarten readiness information, the assessment that we use is not one that's used elsewhere in the country, so we can't norm ourselves against anybody else. We can look at affordability and accessibility and some of those learning conditions that matter, and there we're um, 27th in the nation. And a lot of that is driven by accessibility, um, and I'll get to that in a second. Again, I, as I mentioned before, we're, we have 26% of our kids demonstrating readiness in as they're entering kindergarten across three domains. But you should be worried about that pale blue. 39% of students are not ready in any of the three domains. That should worry us all a great deal. And as you can also see if you look to the right, there are gaps and equity gaps that are showing up as early as kindergarten. We are already seeing very different results for middle-income students and low-income students and for students by race um, as well as special needs. That's a huge concern and more about that in a minute. And it connects to the fact that while we do a, we do a better than average job in providing pre-kindergarten. 84% of low-income families have access to some amount of pre-kindergarten. That's great news. But there are a couple of things to keep in mind that come with that where the work's still to be done. One, that is not necessarily full-day pre-kindergarten. And the research is clear that that's really what you're shooting for. That's what you want. We've got growth to do there. And the second is, and this has something to do with how we spend our dollars, there are deserts. There are places where not only is there no pre-kindergarten, but there may not be any birth-to-three services. And so there are whole areas where it's not, this is not evenly spread, This that there are pockets that are doing well and pockets that really have very little in the way of services. And there's a lot riding on that. In K-12, if we dig a little bit of deeper, here's how we're doing. In the learning conditions, that has something to do with funding, but it also has to do with things like 
Are we getting teachers into the field? Are those teachers as diverse as the students they're serving? Um, do we have enough social workers and counselors to meet the needs of our students? Um, do, how are we handling discipline? Are we seeing significant disparities across race in the discipline and how it plays out in our schools? And when you bundle all that together, we're right in the middle of the pack. Our outcomes are a little bit better, and there's always, it's always encouraging to me when our outcomes outperform our conditions. That tells us that there's a lot of effort that's going in. You ought to feel good when you see that we're outperforming the environment in which our teachers, our principals, our superintendents, and our kids are working. But the one that troubles me the most here is equity. We're 31st in the nation in terms of making sure that all students are doing equally well, and that's where I think we've got the most room for growth. Now, the good news also, here's another bit of good news. Illinois ranks among the top in terms of the growth we get between third grade and eighth grade. What you want to get is five years of growth in those five years of schooling. The median across the country is 4.8 years. Illinois is sixth in the nation in terms of the growth it gets in math between those years. We're eighth in the nation in the growth we get in reading. That is great news. I'm going to unpack that just a little for you, but I did want to pause on that. So big thumbs up to the state. But it's uneven. One of the things you can do in the region is you can actually look and see across districts who is beating the national averages. Four out of ten districts in, in Illinois, despite the funding challenges we have, have managed to outpace the nation in terms of the student growth they've been able to get. That's great. And look, you can see you can see districts are they're spread across the they're spread across the state. We actually look to see are there any easy sort of correlations you can make, and there really aren't. There's just some districts that have really figured it out. They're really moving, but you can see there's an awful lot of districts six out of ten that are not. But here's another bright spot. If you also unpack the growth that we're getting, you can see, look at this, that some of the groups, groups that have started off behind, our Latinx students in particular, five years and four months of growth in math between third and eighth grade. If I had put reading up there, you would see an outpaced growth between Latinx students and black students. That's amazing. That means that we're out, that we're, we're, we're pushing harder. But here's the equally troubling news in the very same graph. Anything that's in the shaded period, and I, I hope it's not too hard to see here, but it's, it, you'll, you'll, this just gives you another reason to do this in your report because you'll see it clearly there. Our students are starting out so far behind that even though we've got kids who are outperforming the national average and outperforming the five years, they're sufficiently far behind when they start that they are unable to catch up, which is why even though we're at the top, in the top 10 in terms of the growth, you'll see we're 30th in the nation in terms of our proficiency. And what this means is that we have got to work an awful lot harder as we, as we get started. In fact, if every district in Illinois made best-in-class growth, they made six years of growth in the five years we've got them, which is, would beat 96% of districts. And the district in Illinois that's doing that is Chicago, by the way. So that's a lot of students, and that has really helped our overall average numbers. But if every district in the state made that, overall proficiency still wouldn't reach 60%. That's how big some of those inequities and those gaps are, even as we're starting the process. And then one thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, because it is affecting virtually every district in the state, is that we have a very significant teacher shortage. It has made it hard. It is creeping its way into other areas, social workers, et cetera. So as these new dollars are flowing to districts who desperately want to hire more teachers, reduce class size, bring in teachers around special education and bilingual, which are growing needs and issues, they aren't necessarily able to find, they don't have enough teachers to meet those needs. And as importantly, those teachers do not reflect the increasing diversity that they're seeing in their classrooms. So we've got some real work that we need to do as a state there. And I'm sure that's going to come up in our panel discussion as well. Which brings us lastly, before I bring the panel up, to how are we doing in post-secondary? So here, the conditions were 28th. You can imagine that a, a good deal of that has to do with the affordability. Affordability then translates to accessibility. Um, our outcomes are actually still reasonably strong. And again, it's always encouraging when those outperform the conditions. But look at the equity. We're 42nd in the country in terms of equity. And what that means is we're 42nd in terms of how, how equitable are the students that we're serving in post-secondary. Are we seeing a real um, diverse student body entering? And are we completing students from different incomes and different backgrounds at similar rates? And as you can see from the number, we've got a long, long way to go there. So again, there's some good news here too, which is we've got more students completing. You see the biggest gains in community college, and that's important. And it's important because 60% of students or more who are in public institutions, two- and four-year institutions, are being educated in community colleges. Sometimes people don't know that, but we actually have a, a pretty huge, hard-working community um, college system. 
But look here. What this tells us, the completion gaps in two-year, four-year, for-profit, non-profit, doesn't matter what institution you're looking at, we've got pretty serious equity gaps in our completion rates. But I also want to give you one more bit of good news. This tells you the overall educational attainment across uh, across different racial groups. And what you can see is the overall educational attainment levels, no matter what group you're looking at, has gone up since 2000. And that, again, is news to cheer. That is great news. At the same time, the very same chart shows you that while every group has improved, gaps actually increased. So we still got work to do. And one of the things that the report highlights is that there are a number of universities on a voluntary basis have come forward. They're working together. They're saying, we're going to set equity gaps. We really want to close those gaps. We're going to work hard to do that. And there's a list of those in your – so next time you see someone from one of those universities, give them a big shout-out. And some of them are in the room, and they deserve a big shout-out. I also want to pause here and give a shout-out to something else, which is we're about to have post-secondary profiles for the first time. We're about to have a nice window into the post-secondary information that's always been available, but in lots of different places. So if you didn't already know where to look, you wouldn't know where to look and you wouldn't find it. So post-secondary profiles just went live uh, last week. That may be something you want to have somebody come in here and talk about. So it's really a wonderful and fascinating and rich array of information. But I want to I end with one last bit of information um, before we get started. And I don't think this is news to anybody um, in the House. And um, that is that the overall enrollment has been declining at our Universities. It has dropped from its height, which was just about five years ago, or excuse me, in the last seven years, we've lost 17% of our enrollment in higher edu- Illinois higher education institutions, 17%. Now, that's up from the high. If you go back a little further, it's not quite so bleak. It's more like 7, 8, 9, 10%. But that should worry all of us, because at the end of the day, we thrive to the extent that our universities do. So we've got some work there to do as well. So I am going to wrap it up and then bring our um, panel up. I just want to again remind you that any of this information, you want to know how does your area look um, and how does your district look, please go on our website and take a look at that, advancedillinois.org. And then with one final thought, which is at the end, I think one of the things that jumps out at us from this, and there's lots of things, this is not a policy document. We intend it not to be. This is about data. We should all be using it. We should all be informing our decisions with it. We don't want to clutter it up with our thinking and what we're going to do about it. But there are things we are, and there's a lot of things in the people in the room are, and we hope that will get teased out in the panel. But I think it's clear that equity is a, needs to be and continue to be a huge priority for the state. And I also think that it's worth focusing on the fact that a couple of things. One, we have made some progress. And notably, we've made progress where we have focused, where we have tried, where we have identified something as a priority and a need, and we have got a plan in place, and we stick with it. We actually are able to move the needle. So we've got to do that in more places. We need to start early. We need to pay attention to the learning conditions in which we're operating. We can't keep expecting better outcomes than our conditions provide. And we need to remember that that focus and the sustained effort are absolutely essential. So we hope that those are conversations that we will have in your own communities, that you will use this report to talk to folks either in your geographic community or in your collegial community, um, higher ed, early childhood, and let us know if and how we can help. And with that, what I'd like to do is invite up our panelists, because now we're going to have a conversation about this. And we have a spectacular panelist. That's why you guys are all here. And so I'm going to ask them to come up while I introduce them. But um, So I want to start the other. Representative Will Davis. You guys know Representative Will Davis is one of the men who, one of the people who... absolutely championed the equitable funding formula. He does a lot more than that as well, but I think he will go down, at least in my personal history, as someone who was absolutely stalwart from the very beginning, because that was a four or five year process. It was a complex process. It required a lot of uh, beating up and beating out, and he did all of that. He did that with he did that as he always does, with uh, the same kind of, you know, stoic, we will just get this done um, attitude that you see here. So I really appreciate him coming and talking with us today and joining us. Miguel Del Valle, Miguel Del Valle, again. He doesn't really need any introduction, but I'm going to only to give you a sense of that the man has done everything. I mean, he was city clerk of Chicago, but he, was, he chaired the P20 Council, which gave him a broad view across the educational continuum and across the state. Um, I think that he, he was obviously a long-standing and long-serving state senator, known for being fierce, known for focusing on education, known for focusing on equity, and known for speaking his mind, having an independent point of view. I think, though, I think you all know that he is now chairing 
representing the Chicago Board of Education. Um, I can't think of anybody who will take that more seriously or with more passion. But I think what he's best known for and probably what he feels he's best known for is he was a founding board member of Advance Illinois and was a board member for eight years. So he knows all this stuff awfully well from that point of view, too. So just an array of experiences. We're thrilled to have him. And then finally, Jesse Ruiz. And Jesse similarly has had just an incredible set of experiences. Right now, he's deputy governor for all things education here in Illinois. He was a brilliant pick, in my opinion, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, one is that he was the vice chair of the Chicago Board of Education. He also was the interim CEO for a period. So he's got that district-level perspective, albeit a district as, as large and unusual as Chicago. He also chaired for many years the Illinois State Board of Education. So he has thought about this and seen this from a statewide point of view. Um, but I think the other reason that I think he was a, a sterling pick is that he has sterling character. And never, I, I remember watching him do what he did at the State Board of Education, which um, is an incredibly important job. It meets all the time. It is not a terribly glamorous job. And he didn't do it for the glamour. And he did it for many years. And he was willing to take slings and arrows on issues when he thought he was doing the right thing that was right for kids. And I've, um, I have been a lifelong fan ever since. So we have three um, panelists who have a collective experience that is um, titanic. So I'm going to start us. We're going to. I'm going to start the conversation. I have a few questions that have already been submitted to me, and then you guys are going to feel free to submit other ones. Just remember, your name's going to be on them, so we know who you are. So um, Jesse, I'm going to start with you because right now you've got the the long and the broad view here in the state and the responsibility for an awful lot of this. And let me just start. You you've seen this from so many angles and points of view. Can you just tell us what jumps out at you from this report as you read this, as you think about this? Where does your mind go? Uh, well, it goes back to those years on the State Board of Education, and and uh, at the time, so I went out in September of '04, and uh, we did not yet have preschool for all. Um, one of the good things that maybe one of the few good things that came out of that administration uh, but but uh, you know we instantly became known as national leaders in this area and unfortunately it just uh, the first thing that that crosses my mind is in those seven years at the State Board of Ed it's unfortunate some of the things you built don't necessarily stay where you left them if you don't continue to maintain and invest and we backslid. I mean, where we are in terms of our investments in early childhood, on the other end of the spectrum, and in, in higher ed as well. And so, uh, a little disappointment that all that work we did uh, back in in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, um, didn't stick, and, and we backslid. And so now, one of the reasons I. I, I frankly left a really nice law practice to uh, to do this. It's it's time to solidify and hopefully lock in stone some of these uh, changes that we did, so that they never backslide again. Now it's no secret, obviously, that uh, um, the governor is a big early childhood guy. It's something that he's been passionate about for many years. Um, I will say, I think the support. One of the things that jumped out to us, I think, as we were preparing this report was how really essential those earliers are going to have to be for us to continue some of the some of the progress we've seen. Is tell us what you've got in mind there or tell us if that jumps out at you and does this data make that case or do you have a different take it, it, on it? It does and, and um, you know I happen to work for a guy, which is another thing appealing about this job, who, you know, walks the talk in terms of early childhood, not only with uh, his own personal Knowledge, but his personal investment, his his family's foundation has been heavily invested. One of the leading investors uh, uh, in, in the nation on early childhood development. He's passionate about this. He understands that there's a huge payoff, and as the latter shows, it's the you know first rung. So we've got to get it right. We're uh, we'll be impaneling a early childhood funding commission soon, and we've done a lot of work thanks to the folks at BCG who uh, did did the pre work. Uh, and thanks to Robin's assistance for arranging that to uh, make sure that that commission has a foundation of knowledge and, and a strict uh, uh, mandate on what to produce in terms of similar to the effort that was done with evidence-based funding to make sure that we have a funding system that uh, meets the needs and addresses the uh, inequities that exist and, and truly make sure that every child receives the services they need 
care and education to be kindergarten ready, which is the governor's mandate. He's like, I, when I leave office, I want to make sure that we're well on the path. Uh, and if we can get there, we can get there. I don't know how long he intends to be in office. Uh, <laughs> but but um, uh, this is the thing he's passionate about. Every Illinois child will be kindergarten ready, not just 26%. It's probably worth mentioning that um, when we went into the to the K-12 funding work, there was an education funding advisory board. So there was a group that's job was to say, how much should we be spending in this space? And we don't have that right now for early no. childhood. So when you say, how much should we be spending to really get kids to a strong start, we don't have an agreed way of doing that. So that's that's I that's clearly going to have to be will, early will, in the list. We will have an agreed to number that there are a lot of, I mean, I'm looking at, my first assistant, Teresa Hawley. I'm looking at Diana Ronner, folks who have spent their careers uh, on this work. And I'm sure there's other folks I just can't see off the top. Uh, but, you know, that's a great thing in Illinois. Uh, you know, we've got organizations like The Ounce and Voices uh, and Advance and other great organizations. The that, Erickson Institute. Yes. I mean, we've got Latino all these great Forum. institutions that um, have a wealth of information and now they have a governor and an administration that wants to work with them to make sure we achieve this and, lock, again, lock it in stone uh, so the gains we make never, ever go away. So I've got a few more questions, but let me, let me shift uh, Representative Davis to you for just a minute. What jumped out at you at the report? You have, you have been focusing on education. You've been involved in um, education for years. You, you have to take a lot of incoming issues as they, as they come. Um, what jumped out at you? Well, I think one of the well before I go uh, before I begin, I want to make sure that I acknowledge a gentleman sitting in the audience. His name is Bob Pritchard, who was my Republican counterpart in dealing with the education formally. I think he owes. I think we owe him a great round of applause for helping to move Wave. that this forward. Wave. I want to make sure. Wave. Bob, you're not waving. You're not waving. And I believe currently serving on the NIU board, but nevertheless, thank you, Bob. Good to see you today. Um, to answer your question, um, um, and I hey, think if we're going to do that, can I also acknowledge Ginger Ostro, who I did not mention, oh, who was executive director absolutely. here for three years at Advance Illinois, who's also here now at Chicago State. Right. Also wouldn't be here. I, I, I maintain that Ginger was kind of the secret weapon uh, with regard to the to the funding reform bill, and there's a whole story funding behind Ninja. that. Yeah, whole story behind that. But um, I think relative to um, to the to the report, as I think I was sharing with your board member, Miss Puente, is that you know we we did something good a few years ago, and I and I think in government you kind of have the expectation of immediate gratification, and the the thing is that your your data is showing that it's not moving fast enough. Um, and that I think you've indicated, as as your opening remarks indicated, we still have a lot of students that are that are not being as impacted uh, by what we're doing as we'd like to, whether you look at them across the board in terms of race and ethnic groups, low-income students, what have you, you know, we, we, we know that those gaps are still there, and we still have a lot of work to do to make sure that as we work to continue to fund the formula appropriately and continue to push the dollars that we are, again, using the formula um, uh, with fidelity and making sure that it's getting to the, to the students uh, that, that needed the most and and um I, I would say that's probably the, the really the one thing that really really jumped out with me is that it's just not growing fast enough well then i've got to ask you the really hard question um i don't know what billion dollar question it is but you know i think the other thing that jumps out is not only are we not you know that we're making progress where we have been putting money in but that it's not fast enough it's 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 not reached all the kids um a superintendent just this morning was commenting that you know at the end of the 10 years fifth graders will will graduate and will still have never never, really ne never re reached adequacy in the districts right. that are serving them. But at the same time, you can see we've got pretty significant needs in our birth to five years, pretty significant needs the, at the uh, higher education right. years, post-secondary years. Can we do it all? How are we going to balance those needs? Because you, you, you got to do it all. Well, if anything, I think what we learned from the, the whole conversation about K-12 through and, and, and the note that I wrote is that K-12 through has given us a template of how we can start looking at early childhood and higher education. It's, it's really given us a way to really examine where the needs are and how do we emphasize the needs. Now, of course, it takes a commitment in order to do so, which means that, you know, we've got to be willing to, to say that some schools need it more than others. 
And that was a tough question for us to answer in the K-12 conversation, but we recognized that we need to do that. We needed to bring the bottom up. We didn't need to level the playing field because, to me, that's taking something from one to give to another, but we know we needed to bring the bottom up. And if we feel the same way about not only in higher education, again, some schools are doing it better than others, uh, and we need to recognize where schools are failing. And, and again, it's a conversation that hurts because nobody wants to acknowledge when they're not doing what they should be doing, but we have to acknowledge it in order to bring about what I think is the, you know, the, the collective thought amongst members of the General Assembly and how we need to work together to recognize that if, again, if we've got some that are doing it better than others, we need to focus a little bit on those that are not doing it as good and, and work to bring those up. Now, on the K through, tw- I'm excuse me, the early childhood space, it's a similar conversation. But uh, I, I don't know if it was something you said in your remarks. But I recently had a meeting with um, uh, uh, with uh, one of the organizations. A name you mentioned mentioned their name, but uh, they work in the K- in the early childhood space. Um, uh, Maria's group. Illinois Action for Children. Illinois Action for Children. I'm so sorry about that. Illinois Action for Children. I had a meeting with them and several of my community-based daycare providers. And Action for Children led the conversation by saying that despite all of our efforts to try to impact these, these this population, at least presumably out in the south suburbs, we still have 20% of kids who are not in any program at all. No, no program at all. So, again, how are we working collectively to acknowledge our need, recognize the need, find out who we're not serving, and then we have to make some serious decisions about uh, putting the resources there to make sure that we capture all the students we need. But, again, recognize that some areas need it more than others, like we observed in the K-12 through funding, and are we willing to make those uh, 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 decisions to make sure that we're helping those populations. Well, let me shift. So more on that to come. Um, uh, but Miguel, you know, again, you've just got a, a remarkable set of experiences. You've seen this upside, sideways, statewide, city-specific. So I'm wondering with all that in mind, what jumped out at you about this report? What caught your eye? Well, first of all, I want to say that Representative Davis and Senator Andy Menar and Representative Pritcher are my heroes. Uh, the work that they did uh, to establish evidence-based funding uh, in the state of Illinois um, is, is, is work that I was a little jealous of because I spent 20 years <laughs> trying to do it. You did. And they finally got it done. Um, and also um, recognized Jesse for, for his role. Um, I was the one who recommended Jesse for the appointment to the State Board of Education. It's all his fault. And so... Um, <laughs> He, he was a corporate lawyer, and that's all he was doing, but then uh, now he's a, an education expert. So there's hope out there. Okay. Um, but th- what stands out the most for me is the growth measures and how well we've done and how we compare nationally on growth. Because the message that that sends should be clear to everyone, and that is that All children can learn, regardless of their economic background, regardless of where they live in the state of Illinois, they can learn, they can progress. But, of course, there's the challenge of proficiency. And that then has to be addressed by us talking about equity and what are the resources that are needed. Where do we need to focus our energies? EBF took a a major step in that direction. It it, it forced us to finally look at at, at equity. Um, But while we were talking about education funding reform, in those early years, we talked about adequacy and equity. And so while we've moved forward on equity, the fact of the matter is that these proficiency numbers tell us that we're far from where we need to be on adequacy, and the funding levels tell us that we're far from where we need to be on adequacy. CPS is about 60, 64%. And I don't know that, that under the current, the current funding structure that we have, I should say the current budget and what's projected for subsequent budget, that we're going to get to even the level that was required, which was about $7 billion 
right, over a 10-year period. Depends on whose math you use. Depending on whose math you use. I don't think we're, we're going to get there. So we have a real challenge ahead of us in terms of how it is that we're going to use what dollars are available. But I want to just remind everyone that in the evidence-based funding formula, and I know I'm going on a little too long. Okay. Uh, the, the, the formula established essential, essential elements, and essential elements means that those elements, resources, and educational programs that have been identified through academic research as necessary to improve student success, improve academic performance, and close achievement gaps, that those elements are part of the formula. Well, today, in CPS, we're struggling with being able to meet all those elements that are called for in the evidence-based funding formula. And so when we talk about the need for social workers, when we talk about the need for nurses, when we talk about the need for case managers to deal with children in, uh, in, in special education, we are far from where we need to be in order to be able to provide those services that are adequate, that allow us to get to then that point where we are then really making a dent in the equity gaps when it comes to proficiency. So let, let me pick up on that in a, in a, in a couple of respects, because I, I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that I think that, that, that this is all about funding, though clearly um, when you fall as far down as we've gotten, it becomes about funding. Um, but it is worth pointing out that you know, CPS beats 96% of the districts in the country of any sort, not just big city districts, but of any sort, in terms of the student growth they've been getting. And that's despite the fact that CPS um, is only now 67% funding adequacy. It, it was at 63% adequacy uh, for m much of the time that is reflected in, in that number. So clearly, while it matters that we have the funding that we needed, it also matters how we spend it. And you actually did have a question from Reagan Burke from Chicago Lights Fourth Presbyterian Church about, you know, the evidence-based funding is a different way of thinking about how you deploy resources. Uh, that is the move that the state has gone to. And, and so the question was, um, is that something that CPS is looking at? And I would add to that just what you think some of those drivers have been. CPS has managed, despite real significant resource shortages, to make some real gains. And if there's anything that you would spotlight on why. Well, um, and Jesse, you can chime in on that too, since you were yeah. on the board for years of that too. I think our quality of instruction has improved over the years, uh, in part because of steps that have been taken at the state level, uh, the establishment of stronger teacher evaluation systems, the steps that we've taken to better train our principals, leadership in schools by way of the principal is really the most important ingredient. Um, I think we've gotten much better in there. Our principals are, are performing really, really well, uh, in spite of the fact that, that they're lacking resources in the areas that I, I talked about. Um, accountability has increased at the state level. Uh, years ago, we were talking about a state report card. Uh, we've strengthened our state report card. It's providing more feedback and therefore more accountability. All these things combined, I think, have, have made a difference in, in CPS. Anything you'd add, Jesse? No, agreed. The principal, I, I still remember Steve Tozier, uh, had to be about in 08, uh, coming to the state board and just really, really harping on, Steve was an education professor at, at UIC, uh, on the most lever leverageable reform we could do was principal preparation and making sure that you know, we we're just not handing out Type 75 to everybody, uh, really focusing on that core of principles and help the, with groups like the Chicago Public Education Fund and others who really help focus on that. Uh, and I remember the, I served as CEO for three and a half months, and probably some of the most important things I did that summer, uh, other than just trying to keep the place afloat, uh, was, was uh, interviewing, I think I placed about six principals and would spend hours with these people to make sure I was making the best possible decision. Well, it's a perfect segue, and I want to acknowledge Jason Leahy, who is right back there, if you want to raise your hand, heads up the, the Illinois Principals Association. Um, and he actually had a question on this as well. And I think that th folks know that the research is really clear that the single most important in-school factor for student success is the teacher at the head of that classroom. But I think everybody equally knows that you are not going to get 
or keep great teachers in your school and in those classrooms if they don't have a principal who knows how to get them in the door, support them so they want to stay. It's one of the single biggest reasons teachers give for leaving a building is they don't feel like they've got that administrative support and leadership. So with that, one of Jason's uh, question is that we are seeing greater attrition of school leaders, that that is of concern, again, that they are such a linchpin for what happens. Um, and just wondering if you had any thoughts on what the state may could be doing to attract, retain, and sustain our school leaders. And I will preface that by saying we used to be a state that really invested in mentoring and induction, not only of new teachers, but of new principals. And we abandoned that about seven years ago. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, I'll editorialize and say I think that's part of one of the things we had to look at. But what else might you add to that? Well, being a suburban representative, that conver- that question is, can be answered a little differently in terms of being able to maintain and keep strong leaders in the school buildings. Unfortunately, some of our school boards have some challenges. And we've got school board members trying to run schools. And unfortunately, that's a recipe for disaster. And, and I say that, again, from a suburban's perspective because we've got a lot of little school districts, not just a CPS, so to speak. But when you've got school board members that are out there trying to run schools, then you're going to see good people come in, and the moment that they disagree with the school board, then the school board is targeting them. They're wanting to fire them. So that's a whole different way of looking at answering that question from my perspective. But, yeah, does the state need to continue to do more to support strong superintendents, strong principals? I mean, all administrators, absolutely. In the K-12 budget, there are a variety of lines that go to try to do those kinds of things. And we battle back and forth with money in those lines, not funding them this year. Again, because we're just kind of going in a lot of different directions in K-12, through having chaired the Appropriations Committee for several years, it's always a constant back and forth, always a constant back and forth. Um, so, again, we did something good with the school funding formula where we just said enough is enough. We're going to start here, and we're going to make the commitment to continue to increase. We still have to figure out some of the other nuances in the K-12 through budget that allow us to Maybe it's through uh, collecting appropriate data. You know, maybe it's some of those things that we need to look toward more to make sure that we are making the right investments with our our uh, our K through 12 funding. I mean, overall funding, meaning the entire budget, not just the EBF per se. Um, but we've got uh, definitely got some challenges. But I think again, as you said, there's nothing wrong with investing and in trying to create mentorship opportunities for principals and how they mentor teachers to help create those strong leaders. Because we anticipate that many of those teachers then are going to want to get their uh, their uh, very certifications and then move up into administration. We see that happening a lot as well. So the impact of of creating strong teachers has a great uh, uh, upward mobility type of effort toward creating then strong uh, other leaders in the school, including principals and then on to other administrators. I also want to remind, so please do submit questions. I've still got some questions that were pre-done, but if you've got questions, I hope you're going to send them up. I see a few raised here. Um, So make sure you got them in. so let me let me ask you a few from here from our from our esteemed audience. And the first is, what is your opinion? This is from James Harmoning from Computer Bytes, uh, is a city club member. I know I'm supposed to say that. Um, what is your opinion about no longer having grades or getting rid of class rank, getting rid of report cards, and moving toward more portfolios that would include writing samples and showing how people can um, do computational problems and more? Any thoughts on that from the group? I guess yes and for me, I would say yes and no, and maybe from a uh, from a legislator standpoint, again, right now the the playing field isn't level. So as we talk about moving away from various things, that's going to be great for some students, um, but not necessarily good for for all students. So a, a hat that I wore several years ago in the '90s, I was a college admissions counselor. And I worked for one of our state schools, Southern Illinois and Carbondale. And just working and going into high schools, particularly in the south suburbs and all across the city, you just see the differences in, in students. And, and that kind of move suggests that everybody is kind of the, the same. And when we know that everybody is not the same, moving aggressively in that way is going to, is going to um, have some, I think we're going to have some challenges with that. Not that I'm opposed to it per se, but we have to make sure that we bring all the, everybody's got to be working off the kind of the singing out of the same page in the songbook in order to get to the point where we start not acknowledging test scores or ranks and, and things of that nature. 
So one of the questions, uh, Alicia Winkler from the Golden Apple Foundation focused like a laser beam on um, teachers, but is interested if each member of the panel might mention what your top actions, the top three, but we don't have long enough for you to do top three, so keep it to one or two if you can, actions for improving the educational outcomes. So again, we talked about some of the things that surprised us, but if you had to list it crisply and clearly, where does your mind go and say, these are the things we've really got to focus like a laser beam on as a state if we want to get improved outcomes? Well, I... Uh, think that uh, we've done a great job over the last 10, 15 years of focusing on on the college part of college and career readiness. Um, we've expanded at CPS IB programs, uh, STEM programs. Uh, we've increased the number of students taking AP courses, dual credit, um, increased dual enrollment. These are all important things. Uh, but when you look at the college completion rate, uh, you see that there's, there's, a, there's a significant drop. Uh, our college going rate, enrollment rate has gone up. Our graduation, high school graduation rate has gone up. But our completion rate um, is, uh, is less than 50% in, in, in many of the schools. Uh, and so what's happening to those individuals? And what did we do to prepare those individuals for alternatives? Um, how many of those individuals now have college debt uh, without a degree? Uh, how many ended up in proprietary schools where they were taken advantage of and didn't, didn't complete uh, and are left owing a lot of money? Um, and so those are, those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked. That's why I think that, that uh, we need to do more to look at the career readiness part uh, and provide students with, with, with more options early on, in, which includes opportunities for stackable credentials and, and the pathways that we've been talking about. This is not, nothing new. We've been talking about it. But when you look at ISB's budget and you look at the funding line for college and career uh, technical education, it's not a whole lot of money. I, I love that you said that. It is also one of the metrics that we follow, how many kids are doing career and technical education. In high school, it has moved from 40% to 45%. So you've got thousands and thousands of more kids a year who are now doing it. But we're at 45%, and that maybe that's the right number, and maybe that's not. So I appreciate that. Jesse, and then, and then Will. Uh, succinctly, what I mentioned, early childhood funding, <coughs> uh, early childhood governance. We get funding streams from a variety of state uh, departments, Department of Human Services, Illinois State Board of Education, DCFS, uh, looking make, to make sure we optimize those funds and that work by looking at the governance of them and, and not just blending and braiding of those funding streams, but making sure they're totally aligned and we'll look at governance of those um, funding streams going forward as well. As well part I'm glad of you guys are mentioning really simple things. Uh, really and and so I'm, in my portfolio, I've got the State Board of Education, I've got Illinois Board of Higher Education, Illinois Community College Board, Illinois Student Assistance Commission, and Abraham Lincoln Museum, just for kicks. Um, but but um, I, I always have to think of not favoring one over another, uh, not like if I'm going to favor one son over the other, although some days I'd like to. Uh, we won't tell. Depending on their attitude. Um, but but um, uh, And that's, that's uh, on the early childhood piece, but on... K-12, we still have a lot of work to do on EBF, teacher shortage, teacher pipeline, uh, and somebody mentioned about you know, how we're grading and, and uh, looking at assessments. We, thankfully, we've got Dr. Carmen Ayala. Amazingly, it's 2019, and we have the first woman state superintendent of education ever in Illinois history. She's a, she's a heck of a superintendent at that. She's not just any old no. And the first person of color. And, and one of the things she constantly mentions is equity, equity, equity. But she's also going to be looking at assessments because it's near and dear to her heart. The proper assessments. Psychometricians, no offense, but it's not a perfect science. Uh, and then on the higher ed piece, uh, we've got to make sure we're looking at affordability. So thus we did a 5% bump. The budget impasse decimated a higher education system. You know, we've got a ways to get back. MAP grant and funding, making sure students have the wherewithal uh, to, to uh, go to college in our state. And um, there's a, there's a, we focus on the students who are there, completion. There's another segment of students, and, and we also worry about all the students who are the 48% of our student high school graduates who are leaving Illinois to go to college elsewhere. I worry about 
those kids weren't even going anywhere. Uh, and so we have to make sure that everybody in you know career and technical education programs, community colleges, four-year institutions, that's our untapped market, and we've got to make sure everybody has a place to go uh, when they graduate high school. Well, well, I'll try to be quick. So, again, on early, lurking, early childhood, filling the gaps. You know, we got kids that are out there being uh, that are not being served. How do we capture all those young people? I'll skip over K-12 and go to uh, higher ed. Um, when we talk about recruiting young people for higher ed, and I've said this to a few of the presidents, we do a terrible job of recruiting our own students, particularly athletes. We have a lot of great athletes in the state of Illinois who are not recruited by Illinois schools. I'll just leave it at that. K through 12, you said something earlier about the billion dollar question. It is a billion dollar question. And it's about time that we start ramping up the funding uh, for the new evidence-based model. Um, I've shared, actually I met with Jesse not too long ago and suggested it, recently met with the governor. Now it's time, we, we've seen what we can do with this, and now it's time to, to increase that. And, and I'll simply say that if we can figure out, and I know the capital bill's a, a little different in terms of where the money's come from, but if we can commit $800 million to fix I-80, not that it doesn't need it with the bridge and everything, but if we can figure that out, why can't we figure out a billion dollars of new money in K-12? through Well, I want you to join me. I did not. I apologize. was unable to get through all the questions. There were another six or seven, and we're at time. But I just really want to thank uh, Will, Miguel, Jesse. It's a spectacular group. Thank you for joining us. I know we can go on.